eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease and a whole lot of love, you transform 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. LED headlights, spoilers, whatever you need. eBay Motors has it at affordable prices. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride every time. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hear that? It's the call of the Crave. And when the Crave calls, you know what to do. Try the $5 Bacon Bundle. Because the only thing better than a White Castle slider is a White Castle slider topped with crispy hickory smoked bacon. So pick any two of either the Bacon Cheese Slider, 1921 Bacon Cheese Slider, or Chicken Bacon Ranch Slider. And also get a small fry for just $5 with the $5 Bacon Bundle. White Castle. Follow your Crave. I'm Steve Letarte, STP auto expert and former crew chief. I know what it takes to keep engines performing at their best. STP's latest breakthrough additive, STP Ultra 5-in-1 plus Fuel System Cleaner plus Fuel Stabilizer delivers three times the amount of cleaning agents versus premium gasoline and helps keep fuel fresh during storage. For over 60 years, STP has been on the cutting edge developing products to help engines run better, longer. One bottle contains three times by weight the amount of cleaning agents compared to 20 gallons of the leading premium gasoline. Welcome to the NASCAR and NBC podcast. I'm your host, Nate Ryan. And our guest today is someone I've been wanting to have for quite a while. It's Ray Evernham. And the reason that it makes sense at this particular point in history is because there's a fabulous documentary that is out. And I want to make sure everybody knows about it right at the start. It's called Refuse to Lose 1997 Daytona 500. And it's going to re-air a couple of times in April on FS1 on April 16th. And on April 17th on FS1. So definitely check your local listings and check this out. I think you're going to want to see it after you hear this conversation. But <laughs> I think you should just go see it regardless because it's it's fantastic. So, um, Ray, just you know, first of all, thanks for being here. I appreciate you making time. Oh, hey, Nate, we've been trying to get together and do this for, for a little while. So really glad we could uh, we could do it today. Um, the premise of why you did this documentary, I, was, I, I saw you in Daytona. So I, I, and I know you talked about this a little bit in the documentary, but when I saw you in Daytona, you were explaining it that you guys felt as if the number 24 should have won the championship in 96. You guys had 10 wins and lose the title to Terry Labonte, who had a much more consistent season, not as many wins. Um, and I, as you put it in the documentary, there was tension during that offseason on the team, and, and you wanted to change it. So you bring in a film crew, <laughs> no pressure, <laughs> to pretty much film everything that happened up to the Daytona 500 in 1997, because you told them, we're doing this because I know we're going to win this race for the first time. I, just your perspective on all of that. Well, even though we were had won the championship in 95, Nate, I felt like we were still somewhat fragile because yeah. we weren't that old as a team. And there were a lot of people there that it still could have gone either way. And I thought we had won 10 races, 10, almost a third of the races that they held that year and still didn't win the championship. And the guys were had their heads down a little bit. And hmm. I thought, what? Well, we've got to do something. I've got to get them to believe that that we're going to win right off the bat. And and honestly, I thought we'll just have some fun, lighten it up a little bit because it, it, 
things could get tense in that shop and bringing the camera crew in and having a little bit of fun, feeling like we were making a home movie. And honestly, we just used to play those things ourselves at our own Christmas parties and, and whatnot. But so this one was going to be kind of our home movie of, look, we're going down there and win the Daytona 500 and we're going to capture it. And at the end of the year, we're going to show all of our home footage and at, at our at our Christmas party. And, uh, and we were having some fun. I also felt like if the guys really you know, they, they were somewhat of an impressionable group. If they really believed that I believed, right. it just seemed like it took that tension. They were just like, okay, we just need, we're going to win. We just got to go do. We got to go execute. We got to, and they stopped worrying about whether or not we could win. They believed we could. They just needed to go and get it done. Yeah. You, you mentioned that in, in the documentary, the, the quote, a uh, couple of quotes I have here. One was, it sounds cocky, but the rainbow, rainbow warriors felt if I believed it, they would do it. And as you said, this was this was kind of a crossroads season for the crossroads season for the team. It was your fourth season together. You'd won a championship in '95, and then a lot of guys talk about you know, th- things don't really get validated until you you win that second title. Um, so uh, how does how does that happen, Ray? That you, you you just build that sense of belief in your guys. I mean, you know that's that's a hallmark, obviously, of a great leader. That if you if you can instill that kind of confidence, but how how do you do it? How do you get them to just believe that way? That's I read a lot about coaching. You know, I'm I'm a huge, huge Vince Lombardi fan, and I really honestly believe that um, a crew chief's job is as much mental as it is understanding the car. And, you know, people sometimes just need somebody to believe in them to be all that they can be. And as I said, a coach's job is to make people really believe that they can do something you know how many times in your life have you've been unsure and you really somebody that you you trusted or you had faith in grabbed you and said no you you're you're good enough you you can do this i had an incident in my life when i was just a kid you know playing baseball and uh it was just really really wild but i i hadn't even though I knew, you know, that that I was a decent baseball player and could hit a ball pretty good, I just couldn't seem to do it when the time came. And I remember, you know, this uh, Mr. Mr. Cogliano, I believe was his name. He had some young boys that were on the team too. I remember him uh, him grabbing me one day, you know, as I was going up to bat, and he he put his hands on my on my face like a big old Italian guy, and he looked at me and he said, "I've seen you practice. I've seen you hit that ball in practice. You know, you can you can do this. I know you're going to go out and you're going to hit a home run." And I was honestly eight or nine years old, and I went out and hit a home run, and I never <laughs> forgot that. And I really, it, and it was because he believed in me, and I felt like. My relationship with many of the team, including Jeff at that time, was that big brother, that father figure, that coach figure, and it, it was important to them that I believed in them. Mm-hmm. Uh, just no different than it was important to me that Mr. Hendrick believed in me, or, or, or you know, it, it that kind of confidence. It just seems like it clears your head and lets you focus on your job. And I, it was important that I did my job as a crew chief technically, but it was also important that I did my job to let those guys know that I believed that they were the best ever. And that that was true. You know, I, I believed in, in my heart that Jeff Gordon was the best guy driving a race car at that time and that my team, the Rainbow Warriors, those guys in that shop at that time were the best guys in, in, in motorsports. And that belief ended up becoming confidence with the team. All of those guys were pretty much handpicked. The Chad Knauses and and Stephen Latarts and all all the guys who were on your team back then were they they were all pretty much your guys. They were all my guys. Uh, 
I don't know if I picked them or they picked me, you know, <laughs> and, and they weren't, you know, great guys. Our, our chief mechanic, Ed Gozel, had come from a Ford dealership. Brian Weitzel uh, came from a Mack Mac truck engineer, uh, Michael Landis, guys that are still at Motorsports. Michael was in plumbing. He was one of my IROC guys. You know, a lot of, uh, there were a lot of my IROC guys right. that, that we all learned under Jay Signori's tutelage that, that, that came down there. So Chad, uh, drove up he was on stanley smith's team and drove up and slept in his car from alabama and waited for me uh steve latarp was my next door neighbor a young kid growing up then you know so it, it's odd how that team came together but we were all very like-minded and 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 very alike in work ethic and so i can't say that i handpicked them or, or they handpicked me it just was that combination of Hundreds of people applied for jobs there to be a Rainbow Warrior, to be on that 24 team. And, you know, there were 25 of them. So, I mean, that just says there's just something about how you click with people. And it wasn't always about what they knew about racing. It was about how their ability to learn, their their desire to get better, and and how bad they really wanted to succeed. So you hit a home run as a nine-year-old. What kind of baseball player was Ray Abraham beyond that? Did Ray Abraham wasn't a bad baseball player. <laughs> you know, um, my my dad probably wishes I had stayed on that side of things. But, uh, you know, uh, my size and, and you, you know, ability, I'm probably built more like a baseball player. My biggest problem is uh, I think I'm just too ADD for baseball. <laughs> I'd get out there and it wasn't happening fast enough for me so I'd be wandering uh, not paying attention out in the field and I'm not very fast I needed to be faster if I was going to be a good baseball player but I was a pretty darn good uh, pretty darn good in the outfield uh, but uh, again needed more speed to be good at college ball or or, or pros uh, it's a good first baseman but uh, again I just man I'm just not a, I'm just not very fast <laughs> Well, ADD doesn't surprise me either because I don't think many racing guys that I know can sit still in an outfield for three hours and just wait for the ball to come to them. Like I know Latart obviously is not well suited for for something no. like that. He might like baseball. I don't yeah, think he's ever going to play a, it. You know, it's, it, I love the game, but man, it just doesn't move quick enough. No, I you know? hear you. I hear you. Um, so you, as you as you mentioned there, you, you kind of jokingly referred to it as home movies. But I know that at the beginning, you actually have Chad Canales look into the camera that, that you're holding. You're filming this at Hendrick Motorsports and say, "This these are Ray Abraham's home movies, essentially. And he, he begrudgingly did it, which I found amusing because obviously we know what Chad is like. Um, was that kind of proof that everyone bought into it, that even like Chad Canales will look into the, the camera and sort of play along <laughs> knowing, knowing who he is? Yeah, and I think at that point, the guys, you know, Gosh, I, I, I've been guilty about creating tension in the shop myself where mm-hmm. it was so serious. Don't smile. Damn it, we ran second last week. Don't <laughs> let me see you smile, you know, <laughs> to where the guys realize, hey, look, it, it, it's okay. You know, wow, he, yeah. he really is relaxing a little bit um, because 94, 5, 6, I was probably too far the other way, and mm-hmm. I wanted to show them, look, we can have fun amongst ourselves. You know, we'll knuckle down when we need to, but – you know, we're going to enjoy this as well. So I think that some of that still um, works with those guys because I know that Chad, Chad, as tough as he is, and he and he got to be tough to be in this sport and do as well as he has, I know that he does relax and kick back with his guys too. Right. So 
Did you did you show it at the office Christmas party? Was that sort of the only intent for release at that point? Was this kind of internally? No, we I don't know. We had all kind. Of, after we won the race, we were like, oh, we're going to make this into a DVD. But <laughs> you know, of course, we didn't know anything about rights and licensing yeah. or distribution. And so we talked to people, and uh, that didn't happen. And we got busy with '98. Right, yeah, yeah, we got busy yeah. with '98, and you know, it wasn't about becoming a TV producer or selling DVDs. It was about winning the championship in '98. So the stuff just got kind of pushed aside. And for years, um, Pam Miller, uh, who who was is uh, one of the producers at uh, at Fox, she just kind of kept the footage for me, looked after it, made sure that I was taking it from VHS to DVD <laughs> to digital, and and stayed on uh, stayed on all those things. And we always talked about that someday. The world is going to want to see this, and and uh, you know, based on the ratings and and the response that we've got back from it, the, the timing was right on the twentieth anniversary. Yeah. So when did it become like a hey, twentieth might be the time to finally put this out there? Was that last couple of years? Oh, uh, we yeah. we actually took it to the folks at Hendrick a few years ago, and we had talked about some things and just didn't get done. And and uh, Det Cullum, who was uh, kind of my right hand guy on the business side here now said you know let, let's let's talk to some of the people at nascar images and at at uh at fox and see if they're interested and and maybe jeff can help push us push it through because it's the 20th anniversary so we went and saw tally hair um who of uh, of nascar images and and some of the people at fox uh jeremy wallace they they loved the idea they they needed to have jeff involved jeff jumped behind it immediately and mm-hmm. in the next thing we know man we're we're producing. We're producing a show. We're going, and it was. Uh, it happened kind of quickly, but I, you know, I couldn't be happier with the way that they told the story. A lot of uh, younger guys jumped in there uh, behind the scenes and did some, did some research, and they were excited about it. And I think that the excitement that the people at NASCAR Images had got me excited, and then that got Jeff excited, sure. and it was it, it it was a fun project. Well, I would be excited too i think if i were to stumble across this footage which is just so remarkable for i mean even i we know you know not to say that teams aren't accessible now but i i always know like when i'm in the garage or or covering nascar there there are lines that you can't really cross (laughs) and this was you know just full access uh it appeared and every waking moment um you guys really were, were open um logistically who handled the filming? Like when you guys were at the track, did you guys have a crew? Or well, how did that it work? was two or three different um, people, and as I said, Pam Miller, uh, you know, kind of led the the group there. And I hope I'm not getting her in trouble for shooting without all the proper permits. Um, <laughs> guy Bumgarner, Kenny Bumgarner uh-huh. was involved. There was another camera guy. I don't remember who it was. And Mean Doreen. God, I wish I could remember Doreen's name, but she was kind of a sidekick. These are all the old TNN and mm-hmm. TBS people. Sure. We were just friends, and we like, hey, can I? pay you like a, a little bit you know and and we uh so we, we paid them the minimum that we could pay them to get them to do it and everybody just it was a fun project uh you know matt yokum was involved in it here and there and huh. so it, it was just uh, as i said it was just uh it was a lot of fun and and didn't have a lot of money to pay them at, at that time so two or three people would grab the camera heck i grabbed it a couple times yeah. you know yeah which was pretty cool to watch um so this was taped right pretty much before the advent of reality television really like three years before say survivors on the air you guys are, are doing this and not to say people don't do documentaries but it's, it's kind of a unique concept that was was ahead of its time and i've heard people say i was talking to steve Wittart today uh to kind of prepare for this and he said you know the cameras were there all the time um 
did it just become second nature at some point that you get you guys had the, the cameras around and what while you were doing all this really important work preparing for the biggest race of the year it just became something that was easy to to just have there yeah i was kind of aware of exactly what but i knew i knew it was my footage yeah. i knew I, ultimately i was in control of it and i had uh, an awful lot of trust in the people that were doing it so i knew it wasn't going to sl- you know, sneak out anywhere. Now, if it was today's social media and, sure. you know, shooting it out left and right, yeah, I probably would have been a little bit more guarded. Yeah. But, uh, you know, we I felt it was important to really capture everything and then decide what we wanted to use. The only time that we stopped filming was on, on the Saturday before the race. We yep. just, we weren't good. And I was like, look, no more Hollywood. I got to get to work. And that was one of them. And it really wasn't about, didn't want them to see what was going on. It just didn't want the distraction with uh, with everybody working. And not that there was a huge distraction, but but let's face it, you know, when, when you're worried about uh, saying the right thing or doing the right thing or, or trying to comment on what you're doing, it just is, we needed to find some speed in that car. And, and we took, we, we shut the cameras down for a day and, and went to work on finding some speed because, as I said in the video, look, if we don't win the race, yeah. this is worthless. So. <laughs> well, obviously it worked because you must have found some speed on that day before the race. We that, found that some had. speed. We yeah. found some speed uh, in the car. Yeah, uh, we did. But, again, we didn't have the fastest car. We won that race with about a fifth-place car. And, uh, you know, we, we every weekend we had a first-place driver and a first-place pit crew. <laughs> so that that helped a good bit. But you got to be in the right place at the, at the right time. And as I said, that I really feel like I was fortunate enough to have been the crew chief for, you know, in my opinion, at that time, the best the best team in, in motorsports. Let's talk a little bit about some of the, the great scenes uh, from this documentary. And I think I told you this, but I got a huge kick out of this. It might be the best scene in the documentary period, that the part where you guys are going through inspection. And so on Daytona 500 Media Day, before about eight tables of journalists on the screen there at uh, a couple weeks ago, they showed this scene with you playing these games with these <laughs> inspectors, which I, of course, found to be very amusing. I don't know if any NASCAR people were taking note of this. And like you said, hopefully there's no statute of limitations on some of this stuff. But um, those inspection games and what you had to do to as as described in the movie to, to get that sticker, um, obviously, you know, that was just a different era. And to use the quote that you, you had in the movie, um, nowadays, when we talk about inspection, it's teams, they're checking it because teams need it to be right. And in those days, as you put it, it wasn't right. It was more about a rehearsal and how do we get it through when it's not right? <laughs> Can you talk about like the difference of 1997 inspection versus 2017 inspection? Oh God. Well, back then <clears throat> that was part of the game, right? The, the sport was still evolving. None of the templates were hooked together and there was a lot of tolerance and it really, where you place the template was important. How you held it was important. Uh, and there was no reference point, mm-hmm. you know, again, there was no reference point. So, you know, you would maybe, the guys would have a line, they'd have to take a measurement and put a line on the car, and that's where they'd hold the template. Well, they'd normally stick a tape measure like in a hood seam or whatever, and so you'd move a hood seam or you'd move your mark or, you know, you'd do all these things, a quarter inch, half inch, and, and the template would end up where you wanted. But it was a rehearsal to know exactly how and in what order you wanted to place those templates because you could have a car that was pretty far out of shape, but make every template fit. 
So is that illegal? Because you're really making the template fit. Now they're not being held exactly the way that they're supposed to be in the exact same place. But right. we actually rehearsed how to, um, to to go through and those advantages and, and get those advantages. And I can't say that I know for a fact that people are doing that now, but I'll bet you there's some crew chiefs out there that are, that are still trying to figure it out. It's certainly a, a lot more difficult, but you had to do it if you wanted to be competitive back then because because uh, you always have to do it you yeah. always have to do it and the guys have to do it now they're yeah. out for every advantage that they can get or you wouldn't see them going around that inspection line right. so many times uh, like they do so it was it was a lot of fun back then we'd actually you know have one guy be playing the the good guy and one guy be playing the bad guy and there were times when i had to tell my guys you know okay <laughs> what if i see this what are you going to do so it 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 was uh, you know it 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 was fun, and there were a lot more gray areas for us to walk in. And if you walked in them, you didn't get fined before and, and all that. That's the part that's changed it. I think that right now the guys go to the track, and they end up getting fined sometimes just for testing the water. And I don't know. You know, I, I, that that's not the sport that I grew up in. Yeah, it, it looks a lot – I was telling you before we started here, Ray, that they, the first – cup race I ever covered was a few months after this was the first race at Fontana in June of 97. And as I'm watching inspection from February of 97, it just, it looks different where you have an inspector who's like saying, I'm going to work with you. If you just knock that out, you know, pull your hammer out and just show me good faith that you're trying. It's, I mean, obviously I know that they had the reasons for changing it the way it is now. And it's so precise and there are lasers now, and there's that claw template now that that essentially eliminate the the wiggle room but as you said i guess there's always gonna be wiggle room but that's what struck me about is watching it is it just it just seems just so different in terms of process Um, again that was that was the game we we were respectful you know you you never did anything that would toss an inspector in or get him in trouble or Mm -hmm. you know change something after you know if you get it through first time it's good but you didn't you know we weren't into changing stuff and creating things in the garage area uh, because then felt like that that's over the line then right so there yeah. there's there, well, there was honor among thieves if, if you will <laughs> but you know, see um the, the i think the problem is now you get uh you can be fined or penalized for conspiracy if you will you know what i mean it seems like if you're talking about it or you're right. thinking about it you get in trouble so the intent you know, like that was intent pre-crime. to break the rules yeah, yeah. Like pre-crime <laughs> you know i'm parked in front of a bank and i'm thinking about robbing it and come on and they get arrested you know <laughs> So, you know, I, I don't know. It, I can't walk. Uh, it's tough for me to walk past that inspection line without thinking about being a, a bank robber to get an advantage. <laughs> but that's just, again, yeah. anybody that, that kind of grew up in that world in the 90s or the, you know, even into the 2000s will tell you the same thing. That was just part of what we had to do to be equal. Yeah. You mentioned that, that good cop, bad cop routine that, that you had with some of your team members. Uh, in the movie, you said that uh, there was some play acting going on. I'm sorry. I'm just a modified guy from New Jersey is how you explained that you would sometimes uh, carry yourself in the inspection line. Uh, we know now what, what kind of a baseball player Ray Abraham was. How, how good an actor are you? Are, is there some theater on your part uh, as part of this? Yeah, you know, you, there is a little bit of theater involved, but I learned at a, a at a fairly young age, you know, if you go in and act like you know everything that's going on nobody's going to tell you anything Hmm. and uh, i was fortunate enough to grow up around a lot of 
really good and smart racers. So you're not going to learn if they think that you already know, they're not going to tell you anything. But I've also known that if you keep your mouth shut and sometimes you tell people, well, I really don't know, people are willing to step up and, and help you. And I'll never forget Robert G. saying to me one time at Hendrick, he said to me, I've been watching you. He said, you got all these guys thinking that you don't know what you're doing. He said, but you know exactly what you're doing, and they're just telling you everything they know, and you're beating them. And uh, I never forgot that. But, you know, there was a little bit like I just, hey, man, I'm, you know, I'm just a modified guy from New Jersey. You know, I just, because it was still new into it. So uh, I, I I do that sometimes. I think I still do it a little bit. For me, it's... uh I don't think I'm a very good actor, but, <laughs> you know, it, it worked. Those inspectors might have been saying, that's a bunch of bull. <laughs> well, like you said, I mean, I think it worked, and we saw how during the course of the documentary. Uh, as you said in it, um, when you're doing sleight of hand, you always have to wonder what they're going to see you or what, what they're going to see you're actually doing. And as, as you explained it, um, you, know, you might have 10 things that you want to get through, and you, you might get seven of them because they're going to focus on some other things and you can kind of explain this it's it's well explained i think in the documentary but essentially the back bumper was where the advantages for this car were right but they were they were focused on the sides and when they focused on you fixing the sides as you mentioned the way those templates worked that allowed you to get the back bumper through i guess is that essentially how it worked yeah the back bumper we had extended it uh and that was um because there wasn't a template there yeah but what got us was when we showed up, they had made a template. <laughs> and and well, that's behold. when we were like, oh, we don't have that template. <laughs> so, but they didn't realize what we had done. And right. for some reason, they thought we narrowed the back of it with against this template. And it wasn't. It was the fact that we pulled it back so far that the template didn't fit where it was supposed to fit on the quarter panels. So they were like, well, you guys have made this narrow. And I'm thinking, well, if they make us make it wider, it's actually going to be better. And we're like, oh, you know, so it was, it was, it was pretty cool to get it done. But there were a lot of things like that, that sometimes you would do stuff blatantly to take Mm -hmm. focus away from something that was minor, something that you knew wasn't a real big deal, but it wasn't right. And, uh, you know, the guys used to be pretty good about, they didn't want you to do too much work. They didn't want to cut your car up, you know. So if you had yeah. something that you knew you really wanted to get through, you'd do two or three other things that you would just let blatantly get caught on so you'd had to fix, and they'd kind of leave you alone on the other stuff. So on a 97 Cup car, if you pull the black, the uh, back bumper out, is that downforce? That was actually just a little bit less drag. It wasn't – uh, okay. it, it, it really – you know, for us, that car just wasn't great. You know, we just weren't great wind tunnel numbers. But back then, we used to pull the bumpers back and up a little bit, and it would help with the drag. Uh, you know, it would just break the air off a little bit cleaner back there. So one of the uh, one of the, the, the great things that I think about this film is it sets up the Dale Earnhardt versus Jeff Gordon rivalry really well. Obviously, Dale Earnhardt is in a class of his own, um, seven-time champion, and you know nobody better probably at Daytona in history. Um, and I think in particular, as it relates to you, Ray, it, it showed how much that relationship with him meant to you. I mean, everybody obviously focuses on the driver rivalry, but um, you know the fact that, that Earnhardt comes over and starts kidding with you and you kid him back about that he lifted and let his teammate Mike Skinner win the pole – um, you guys had a, a, a pretty special relationship, it seemed. How long did it take for you to develop that rapport with, you know, one of the greatest drivers, most iconic personalities of, of all time? 
Well, I think it goes all the way back to IROC, you know, because you yeah. remember I worked with him early in my IROC days, and I was kind of the um, crew chief at IROC at that time. So he had to deal with me a lot, and I always treated him with respect, but I was always in awe of what he could accomplish. And it wasn't like he was that much older than me. So we talked about a lot of things, and he knew that I drove Modifieds, and he, he got to see me drive a couple times at North Wilkesboro and places like that. And I even drove he, in a fire suit. He and I were the same size. He even drove in one of his fire suits uh, for a long time. And uh, we just had a good relationship because even though I, I had tremendous amount of respect for him and wasn't intimidated, like every, intimidated by him like everybody else, I used to give it back to him, and I think he liked that. Yeah, you know where you know he'd come up and grab you by the neck or he'd whatever. But when I get behind him, yeah, you know, you know, I would kind of do the same thing. And uh, he, uh, you know, I've got a five dollar bill uh, over on my my uh, bookcase there that I won off him in a bet, and I made him give it to me and and sign it, you know, because you know just things like that that I'd give it I'd give it back to him. And uh, as we raced together. I think he, he respected my uh, knowledge and ability to make a car handle as, as much as I respected his uh, ability as a driver. But more so, you, you, you have people in your life, certain people in your life, that drive you to be better, even though they don't know it. They're not out mm-hmm. there trying to make you better. Mm-hmm. But you, you are either you care enough about these people or you respect these people so much that you want to impress them, you want to be on their level, and... Dale Earnhardt was that guy for me, right? He 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 was the best in the business, and I wanted to 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 show him that I could be the best in the business. I wanted to race him. I want I wanted to be worthy of being able to compete with him, and uh, the fact that he allowed me to be in that kidding around arena mm-hmm. showed me that respect back, and that was probably one of the the greatest things that I look back in my career, being able to have a friendship with him. And we weren't, you know, we, we we yelled at one another a couple times and things like that. But the fact that I yelled back at him, I think even he looked at, you know, and then he would respect, bust me, goes, right? you know, yeah. he's like, don't you respect my seven championships? Don't you? So I said, I do respect your seven championships, but don't run in my damn car. You know, <laughs> so it was uh, we in and I, I said this and meant it, you know, the day he died, I knew that racing had changed for me. And I just said to people, it's, it's just like it's never going to be the same. It's never going to be the same, and that's the first. That was my first day, uh, really, as a Dodge team owner. Was my first race, mm-hmm. and uh, we lost Dale Earnhardt in in that race, and it never was the same. I just don't. I I think that day some of my fire went out. Really, because yeah. he's a once in a generational person. I who guess just sets you know. Bar. I don't know. As I said, it just you know, it just was. It was the beginning of the of e- even though i loved you know the my time with bill elliott and casey and all the things that we did it really sure. the the fire just was never the same after that because you need somebody like that as you said who makes everybody greater yeah so yeah. you know that person you know you're that person that you're running um your 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 career against or you're doing things as i said it just you know again the fire didn't go out but but you know it, it got turned down a notch yeah Something I didn't know. You hired. You know, the documentary talks about this as well. You hired away. Was it was Ricky Virus on his pit crew or just yeah, on Ricky Virus okay. was on the pit crew, the road crew. Yeah. Did that? Uh, did that have the intended effect? Did that strategy work? Did you feel like he brought some things? Uh, that, I think it did. You, yeah. you know, because that 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 time it was. Um, you know, I think Ricky Ricky Virus was the first guy to jump ship from Earnhardt to Gordon. It was like, right. oh my god. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It was yeah. like, whoa. <laughs> the balance of power is shifting. shifting. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that got 
it, it caused a lot of stir mm-hmm. at, at that time. Um, and, you know, again, it was – we had an opportunity. Ricky came to us. A couple people talked to him. And uh, and we we made that deal. And it was not something that you wanted to intentionally go after a guy and, you know, somehow – hurt the team by stealing people and whatever but we had the opportunity and i knew ricky was a good mechanic and a good tire changer and on top of that the psychological effect was just another thing that i was thinking about one more thing on earnhardt obviously the 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 race essentially i wouldn't say it comes down to earnhardt and gordon but there's this moment with about uh, i think 20 laps to go where they're battling and then earnhardt hits the wall because he's racing so hard um he gets in an ambulance after the car gets torn up he realizes it can still crank he gets back in the car without a helmet on and drives it back <laughs> into the pits without a helmet and flips you off uh, while well, smiling. Well, that was on his right? way back out. On his, oh, that, on his that, way back that, out. He had a helmet on then. Oh, okay. He had a helmet on. <laughs> that, that was when they had fixed and he's going back out. You know, they're get, race is getting ready to go green, and I'm looking. Here comes this thing driving down pit road. Yes. Roll cage laid back, roof busted, deck lid all taped on, and he pulls up alongside there, revs the motor, and looks at me and flips me off. But he had yeah. that big, goofy smile that he used to have in that <laughs> helmet. He, you know, he had that, that open-faced helmet, and he, he could smile as wide as the opening on that thing. And I don't think he was mad at me. He was just letting no. me know, hey, I ain't done yet, yeah. you know. Yeah, but. Well, it sort of reminded me, right? Like it's almost, it almost felt like the, the kindred spirits of your, the refuse to lose mantra. I mean, it was evident for him too. That was Earnhardt saying, I don't care if I'm going to finish 20 laps down. I'm going out there in a car that's all torn up. I'm going to finish because that's what you do. I mean. Yeah. You know, and that was, I think some of the things that made him, and again, I look, I, I wasn't around when he was growing up, but if you look and think, here's a guy that was probably told more than once that he wasn't going to make it or didn't have a. Sure didn't have all of the inroads and you know the the money to get it done and just kept sticking with it and i think those are the things that you know when people are forged by fire like that that was you know you know we we were certainly refused to lose but if you look at earnhardt that was just the way he was he was not he was not going to get beat you weren't going to beat him down to the mat and he was going to stay there that just wasn't going to happen right uh you talked after Gordon won, that as you, I think as you were walking in the, in the pits, you were thinking about all the people who had given you 5 or $10 for a pit pass to get you into a short track somewhere in New Jersey on a Saturday night or whatever. Um, who are one or two people that, that come to mind when you think about that? Well, first, you know, my, my Uncle Nick, who started taking me to the races when I was like 8 or 9 years old, you know, he he was just a uh, – he is he, almost – like a W.C. Fields type character, you know what I mean? He just I was supposed to be going to church. My mom would drop me in church. I'd walk in the front of the church, and I'd put the money in the in the collection plate, but then I'd walk outside and meet Uncle Nick so we could leave early to go to East Windsor Speedway and catch warm-ups because if we didn't, you know, we'd, we'd miss warm-ups. And, uh, you know, he, he took me to uh, to Flemington, to East Windsor, to Wall Stadium, you know, for, for many, many years. And then the people that helped me with – my cars uh when i was trying to build them and finish them a guy named shay nappy who who would not only work on my car but he he's a guy that knew that like look i needed gas money in the truck to get home because we were racing a modern stock to for well, i think we got like the purse was 22 bucks or something <laughs> like that and uh a guy named Bill Wishnick, who actually, believe it or not, was, uh, I think, uh, he, he was, uh, I don't know if he was the CEO, but he was a high-level uh, man from Kendall Oil. 
and there was a time when I probably wouldn't have raced for two or three weeks if he hadn't said to me, why, why aren't you racing? Hmm. I said, well, my motor's broken. I don't have the money to pick it up. When he went and paid my motor bill so I could, so I could put it in my car and race. And you, you look at people that had gotten behind you, um, you know, guys like Jamie Tomano that I raced with for years who, who had to take care of his own stuff. But if I wrecked my car, he'd end up working on my car all week with me because I didn't right. have anybody to help me right. get it together. And, and uh there were two farmers uh, from New Jersey, John and Jim Balma, and without them, I wouldn't honestly had a career because those guys, when I drove their car, they should have fired me so many times because <laughs> I wrecked so much of their stuff, you know. But they uh, they were good guys and they kept me in the seat till I got enough experience to you know to do well uh, in, in the modified and then get that job at IROC, you know. But they they should have given up on me plenty of times. <laughs> And then when you got to NASCAR, there were some people who helped you as well. There were, you know, Banjo Matthews, Leonard Wood, Smokey Eunuch, uh, who else? Herb Nab, Harry Hyde, Waddell Wilson. Really lucky. Really, really, really lucky, you know, to have been in what I call the sweet spot of NASCAR. You know, for, you know, first of all, guys like, without guys like my friendship with Andy Petrie and Mike Joy, you know, Mike Joy talked Alan Kowicki into hiring me. Huh. Uh, Andy t- Andy put me together with uh, with with Jeff Gordon, um, Phil Barkdahl, you know, gave me took pretty good care of me when I needed a place to sleep and and things like that. Uh, but having the opportunity through IROC to to live right with Banjo Matthews and work with Banjo Matthews was amazing mm-hmm. because it's like okay, you know, now you 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 get to work with some of the greatest names of our sports. It'd be like going to bat and practice with Babe Ruth or Mickey Mantle, like a, and and having people take you under their wings. Herb Nab teaching me how to to be able to set um, front ends and be able to have conversations with Smokey Eunuch about engines and cars and connecting rods. And we used to meet once a month when I first started the Dodge program. Really fortunate. Uh, and again, it goes back to that you know mouth shut, ears open type thing. And that's the way I always approached it. But you know, if you are if you are a baseball player, if I'd have been a baseball player, there's no way I could have been. <laughs> would have got to play ball with, with Lou Gehrig and, and Babe Ruth and Mickey Mantle and all that. But through racing, uh, I, I've been able to be exposed to some really incredible mechanics and uh, and drivers just, uh, you know, with what we've done recently with Mario Andretti. And, and th- it's just amazing to sit and listen to people like that. Spending a day with Mario Andretti is like spending a day with the Pope, I'm going to tell you that. It's like royalty. It's as close wow. to royalty as you will ever get. So thank God every day, you know, I, I think – Man, I, I'm like the Forrest Gump of racing, right? Because <laughs> you get I, – I don't know how I get in all these positions to meet these people and spend this time, but uh, I appreciate it more than you know. Well, I would think that your talent and ability have, have something to do with that. And the, the legacy you created at Hendrick and in NASCAR certainly is, is well established. Um, I want to ask you about one more thing from the documentary. Um, it, you mentioned toward the end that you felt like you'd, you'd established – um, a, a dynasty at Hendrick and, and Jeff Gordon, you know, says that and I've heard him say this before. He's lamented many times that if you guys had stayed together, I mean, God knows what, what you could have done. And I know that there's a sign featured in the movie that I, I think you might still have here that then it's from nobody to upstart, mm-hmm. or upstart to contender, contender to winner, winner to champion. And then the last line on that sign is champion to dynasty. And you guys never checked that one. And I'm just curious, why, why did you never check, uh, the dynasty. Well, we had unfinished business. You know, when we we, we split, it wasn't, you know, it, it was kind of we, we, we split uh, 
for me to go do the Dodge program, and, and Jeff stayed. So didn't really think it was proper, mm-hmm. um, and I didn't think time was right. I think Dynasty checkmark needs to be put up by the by the the sports media or fans, possibly. Um, but you know, if you look at a team that in that time. Basically, for three or four years in a row, we won almost a third of the races that NASCAR had by ourselves. That's a pretty good run. <laughs> uh, so, you know, I don't feel like I have the right to say it was a dynasty. In my opinion, we dominated that sport for, as I said, those three or four years in a row. Yeah. And that, that to me, is a dynasty. But in the end, it's going to be up to, to, to guys like you, Nate, to decide whether that was a dynasty or not. Well, you, you know you've got my vote. And uh, I'm hopeful <laughs> that the NASCAR Hall of Fame, perhaps this year, uh, there will be others of, of like-minded thinking because three championships in four years. And as you said, Ray, I mean, guys won like one out of every three races pretty much from like 95 to 99, which is, is fairly amazing. Uh, I want to end with one more thing here, Ray. Uh, three names. Uh, the crew chief tree that you've established. Um, three guys I want to talk about. The first, Tony Gibson wasn't a part of that 97 team. I think he came on in, in 98, 98 99. as the car chief. Correct. Um, but obviously, he's in the news this week. Uh, I'm sure that meant a lot to you to see that um, Yeah, he was the winning crew chief of this year's Daytona 500 as the hometown local guy. Um, and I, I did an interview with you a couple of years ago, Ray, in which you described him kind of like as a journeyman catcher who can take a rookie pitcher who's a little wild and settle him down. Like the Tony's just, he's, he's that really level set. Doesn't let his ego get in the way. How, how would you describe Tony Gibson to, to people who don't know? Well, that certainly is, is, is a good description, but Tony is very grounded. Um, Tony's worked hard and f- his whole family sacrificed their, a lot for racing for years, you know, uh, from his his brother Mark and his dad was really neat as he's from Florida there, so it was great. You know that's kind of his home track. My God, Daytona, and he and he wins there. But Tony is uh is really a mixture of the old school guy. You know, there's not a lot of old school guys left. And what amazes me is that he's been able to fit in with the new tools. He's been able to adapt. So this is a guy that's been racing probably for over 40 years, and take some of that old school stuff he's got his engineers um, and he's got his driver he's been able to keep his driver calmer than most people have uh, (laughs) throughout that driver's career and he's got a group of of young engineers that that just love him and that's that old school coach sarge whatever you want people respect that he's a little you know calloused and he's fun and whatever but but he's got that that spirit of what early NASCAR was about that he that he carries and 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 shares that with his guys. Stephen Latart, who, as you mentioned, was your neighbor when you hired him as a 15 year old, I believe. Um, he is not uh, featured, I think, in the documentary, but there was an outtake that they put out um, on the Fox Sports, uh, I think, site or or Twitter where yeah, it showed and him. Jeff was upset that they cut Stevie out too. Yeah, so I, we, I, yeah Jeff was I upset. He's like, man, I can't believe they cut Stevie. Yeah, out. <laughs> when I saw that, I was like, I was so <laughs> Sorry, excited to Stevie, see it in the movie. We didn't edit it. We um, didn't. So he's this. Uh, just to set up for people, he's this 17 year old kid in the movie in in this clip and he's talking about lug nuts and and he's obviously like he knows exactly like to the number like how many lug nuts they're going to go through <laughs> in the course of a uh, speed weeks and i've talked to you about him before but I, I i i've gotten to know him a little bit better obviously the last couple of years ray and i i'm struck by like like the the level of intelligence with, with him is is 
fairly off the charts. I mean, I think like he's he's brilliant in some really you know obviously he, he was great at strategy, and I think that speaks to it. He's he's great with numbers, but I, I heard you once say I think that he could be a great politician too because he just he just understands kind of how how people think. He he is. That's what makes him I think uh, great at at his new job and uh, in, in the broadcast booth. He's able to take in a bunch of information, process it, and it just it, it comes out of his mouth in really sequential order. Uh, and he's always been like that. He was extremely bright as a kid, extremely bright. The best tire guy by far that I ever worked with. And that's all about numbers and sets right. and pressures and, and things. And then as a crew chief, f- by far one of the best guys calling a race and strategizing that's been on pit road. Yeah, you know that that that's to me uh, was always one of his strengths, and, he, and Steve will tell you that. Hey, I just used to set the car up for like Chad. Chad, I would just do whatever Chad did building cars. Yeah, but uh, on the box, Stephen, you know, great great field uh, general. So that that intelligence and the ability to put thoughts together have helped him uh, uh, a great deal. And Stephen has always uh, thinks very logically. And when I say that, you know, you part of logic is is being able to think in steps, that sequential step of this process is how we should do things. And as I said, that 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 is what really helps and makes me enjoy listening to him on the broadcast. When, when you hire somebody like that, Ray, and, and, and take ownership kind of in his development, when do you know, not just for Steve, but I guess for anybody, but maybe in his case, particular is a good example, that this guy can be a crew chief. Like, is it right away, like, as a 16 or a 17 or 18-year-old, is it the best tire guy you had? Are you looking at him and saying, in eight years, I could see this guy crew chiefing for Jeff Gordon? Uh, you know, it's a matter of what they want to do. You know, that yeah. it, what was really, you know, Stephen was so young, he, and I'm not sure if he wanted to be a crew chief or what he wants to. I honestly thought Stephen was going to leave us and be going to – NASA or the White House or, or or marry some you know some super rich woman because the older women used to chase Steve around like unbelievable. They'd be like, leave him alone. He's seventeen. Um, but uh, I knew that he could do whatever he wanted to do, and, and I, I think that he has. And I, obviously, he's still a young man and far from from done yet but if he'd have said to me when he came in hey i want to be a crew chief i'd have thought well yeah there's no there's there's no doubt same as chad when chad the first day i hired chad told me he wanted to be a crew chief i had no doubt he was going to be a crew chief that is where we're going to end is of course with chad canos and i was going to say yeah there's a guy who knew from the start what he wanted to do which was the first day he said said, i said where do you want to be in five years he said i want your job i was like man this is the guy that i want and everything that he's ever done in his life has been focused on becoming the best crew chief ever and he's done that i mean he you know if you you look at right now the two greatest crew chiefs in our sport dale Emmon, chad canals period Mm -hmm. period yep you know you want to go by numbers you want to go by car build? Whatever you want to do, lay out those categories. Those two guys are number one and two. Right. Now, which one's what? H- how do you know? I, but, you know, it's, it's you know, you you look at, at any other sport, there, there's always names that pop up there. And I will tell you that clearly that, uh, that, that the two greatest crew chiefs in, in our sport – Dale Inman and Chad Knauss, and I dare anybody to argue with me about that. <laughs> we uh, we had Chad Knauss on this podcast, Ray, uh, recently, and he told us that there were three people that he called the night mm-hmm. after the championship. There was Brooke, his wife, there was mm-hmm. his father, John, and you were the third call. Mm-hmm. And he said that 
he called you three times and as he put it, he woke your ass up in the mm-hmm. middle of the night. Um, and he told me like, you know, obviously you were so happy for him and very complimentary. Um, maybe despite the fact that he woke Aaron and Kate up as well. Um, <laughs> what, what, what do you remember about what you told him in the course of that phone call and, and what did it mean to receive it? Well, First of all, the first time he called, I didn't answer because I thought to myself, they're trying to get me to go out. And it was like three or four o'clock in the morning. I'm like, I'm too old for this. I'm not going out. I'll have a beer with him because just so, so proud of him. But I don't remember exactly uh, what I told him. I'm sure that I congratulated him and let him, you know, know uh, to understand and enjoy what he has done. But it meant a great deal to me because Chad has always been. Um, very, very respectful, and I don't, I don't, I sometimes am embarrassed when people go, oh, Ray trained this, and Ray did that, and Ray did that. You know, a lot of other people had the same opportunity to learn from me that Chad Knauss had, and Chad took the things that he learned from me, he built his own foundation, and he's improved on them, and you know, it wasn't like I just took Chad under my wing and he was, you know, the, you know, the teacher's pet and he got everything. He didn't get any more than than was out there for everybody else. He worked for it and he appreciated it. And I've never seen a person in my life that has been so tenacious about one thing. What Chad Knauss and Jimmy Johnson have done, staying together and, and fighting through the years of racing and the changes amazes me. I will tell you that that's something I don't think that I had the strength to do, you know, because being the the pressure of a, of a crew chief right now mm-hmm. is incredible, and it gets mm-hmm. worse every year. And for the amount of years at the competition level that he's been able to do it and keep his team together, to me, is amazing. If you had to tell somebody what is the single greatest – attribute that Chad Knauss has that makes him, as you said, one of the two best crew chiefs of all time. Is is there one singular thing that would be, is it the tenacity? Is it his car knowledge? Is it his leadership? Is there anything in particular that really just sets him apart and makes him unique? I don't know what the word I would use if, it, if it's tenacity or, or commitment. The, I would say maybe the, the commitment that he's made to being the number one crew chief because he's had to adapt. He's had to sacrifice. He's had to do a lot of different things. And Again, to keep the level of commitment that he has had for all the, the, the years that he's been doing this is amazing to me, no, no matter what field you're in. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it, to, the, to keep that level of commitment week in and week out to winning races is, is incredible. Somebody's got to win them all, I think, and why can't it be me? I think is uh, the attitude he has, and I That's think exactly right. I think it's the attitude you had uh, in '97. <laughs> we used to say that, yeah. But hey, you know, like who says you can't win them all? <laughs> I mean, who says that really? Right. You know, right. somebody's got it. Yeah. Again, I encourage everybody to check out this this documentary, um, "Refuse to Lose 1997 Daytona 500" on April 16th and April 17th on FS1. Uh, again, Ray, thanks so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Enjoyed it, Nate. Hope hopefully we can get to do it again sometime, but uh, a lot of fun. I got a few more things I want to talk to you about, so we'll do it again. No worries. Thanks again to Ray Evernham for joining us and for allowing us to tape at his office in Mooresville, North Carolina last week. Thanks as well to Megan of Fox PR and Chelsea of NASCAR Broadcast Communications for their help with coordinating. And thanks again, as always, to producer Tess Quinlan, 
Tess also produces the Monday Morning Donuts podcast with Parker Kligerman and Carolyn Mano. That drops on, when else? Monday mornings at 6 a.m., and it's an entertaining, intelligent, and fun recap of the previous weekend's races. In the most recent episode, Parker had a great nugget about why the RCR cars were having battery problems at Atlanta. That's the kind of insight you won't get anywhere but from a driver such as Parker. He did really well in the truck race at Atlanta last Saturday until a mechanical problem hit. Carolyn also has a great knack for posing questions about the races. I thought she did a fine job in the latest episode dissecting Kyle Larson's perplexing move that effectively allowed Brad Keselowski to win the race at Atlanta. So all of that was in the latest episode. You should subscribe to check out the next edition of Monday Morning Donuts. You won't get this kind of breakdown anywhere else. Parker and Carolyn have a great rapport, and they are as good a pair to hear together as they are to watch together on NASCAR America. And speaking of, don't forget that NASCAR America is on Monday through Thursday on NBCSN. That's our nightly show that will keep you informed of everything happening throughout the 2017 NASCAR season. Usually it's not 5.30 p.m. Sometimes starts at 5, sometimes at 6. Check your listings or go to NBCSports.com slash NASCAR, where we always have daily updates on what's to come on the show and, of course, when it starts every day. A reminder that the NASCAR NBC podcast can also be found on iTunes, where you really help us out and spread the word if you can leave a rating or review, so please do that. This podcast also is available on Audioboom, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, virtually anywhere you can go for podcasts, you can find us. If you've got ideas for the NASCAR NBC podcast, send them to me on Twitter, at Nate Ryan is my handle. Uh, thanks again for listening to this episode of the NASCAR and NBC podcast. I'm Steve Letarte, STP auto expert and former crew chief. I know what it takes to keep engines performing at their best. STP's latest breakthrough additive, STP Ultra 5-in-1 plus Fuel System Cleaner plus Fuel Stabilizer delivers three times the amount of cleaning agents versus premium gasoline and helps keep fuel fresh during storage. For over 60 years, STP has been on the cutting edge developing products to help engines run better, longer. One bottle contains three times by weight the amount of cleaning agents compared to 20 gallons of the leading premium gasoline. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.